Section 42 of Narratives of Colored Americans. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narratives of Colored Americans by Abigail Mott and M. S. Wood. Naimbana. When the Sierra Leone Company was first settled, they endeavored to bring over to their friendship all the petty African princes in their neighborhood. Among others, they applied to a chief of the name of Naimbana, who was remarkable for a good disposition and an acute understanding. He easily saw that the intention of the company was friendly to Africa and entered into amity with them. They spoke to him about the slave trade and gave him reasons for wishing to have it abolished. He was convinced of its wickedness and declared that not one of his subjects should ever go into slavery again. By degrees, they began to talk to him about religion. But he was rather wary on that head. It seemed he had formed some prejudices against Christianity. Finding, however, that the company's factory contained a very good sort of people and that they lived happily among themselves, he began to think more favorably of their religion, but he was still backward either in receiving it himself or in making it the religion of his country. He was well convinced of the barbarous state of his own people, on a comparison with Europeans, and he wished for nothing more than a reformation among them, especially in religion. But as he found there were several kinds or forms of religion in the world, he wished to know which was the best before he introduced either of them. To ascertain this point as well as he could, he took the following method. He sent one of his sons into Turkey among the Mohammedans, a second into Portugal among the Papists, and the third he recommended to the Sierra Leone Company, desiring they would send him to England to be there instructed in the religion of that country. It appears he meant to be directed by the reports of his sons in the choice of a national religion. Of the two former of these young men, we have no particulars, only that one of them became very vicious. The last mentioned, though I believe the eldest, bore his father's name, Naimbana. The Sierra Leone Company received the charge of him with great pleasure, believing that nothing could have a better effect in promoting their benevolent schemes. Than making him a good Christian. Young Naimbana was a perfect African in form, and had the features with which the African face is commonly marked. While he was with the company, he seemed a well-disposed, tractable youth, but when opposed, he was impatient, fierce, and subject to violent passion. In the first ship that sailed, he was sent to England, where he arrived in the year 1791. We may imagine with what astonishment he surveyed every object that came before him, but his curiosity, in prudent hands, became, from the first, the medium of useful instruction. During his voyage he acquired some knowledge of the English language, and although he could not speak it with any degree of fluency, he could understand much of what he heard spoken, which greatly facilitated his learning it when he applied to it in a more regular way. The difficulty of learning to speak and read being in a great degree subdued, 
he was put upon the grand point for which he was sent to England, that of being instructed in the Christian religion. The gentlemen to whose care he had been recommended alternately took him under their protection, and each gave up his whole time to him, faithfully discharging the trust which he had voluntarily, and without any emolument, undertaken. Naimbana was first made acquainted with the value of the Bible. The most material parts of the Old Testament, as well as the New, were explained to him. The great necessity of a Savior for the sinfulness of man was pointed out. The end and design of Christianity, its doctrines, its precepts, and its sanctions were all made intelligible to him. With a clearness of understanding which astonished those who took the care of instructing him, he made those divine truths familiar to his mind. He received the gospel with joy and carried it home to his heart as the means of happiness both in this world and the next. His love for reading the scriptures and hearing them read was such that he never was tired of the exercise. Every other part of learning that he was put upon, as arithmetic, for instance, was heavy work with him, and he soon began to complain of fatigue. But even when he was most fatigued, if he was asked to read in the Bible, he was always ready, and generally expressed his readiness by some emotions of joy. In short, he considered the Bible as the rule which was to direct his life, and he made a real use of every piece of instruction which he obtained from it. This was evident in all his actions. If his behavior was at any time wrong, and a passage of scripture was shown to him which forbade such behavior, whatever it was, he instantly complied with the rule he received. Of this there were many instances. One related to dress. He had a little vanity about him, was fond of finery, admired it in other people, and was always ready to adorn himself. His kind instructors told him these were childish inclinations, that decency and propriety of dress are pleasing, but that foppery is disgusting. Above all, they told him that the Christian is ordered to be clothed with humility and to put on the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. Such passages, whenever they were suggested to him, checked all the little vanities of his heart and made him ashamed of what he had just before so eagerly desired. The irritable passions, where lay his weakest side, were conquered in the same way. His friends once carried him to the House of Commons to hear a debate on the slave trade which Colonel Tarleton defended with some warmth. When Daimbana came out of the house, he exclaimed, with great vehemence and indignation, that he would kill that man wherever he met him, for he told stories of his country. He told people that his countrymen would not work, and that was a great story. His countrymen would work, but Englishmen would not buy work. They would buy only men. His friends told him that he should not be angry with Colonel Tarleton, for perhaps he had been misinformed and knew no better. Besides, they told him that, at any rate, he had no right to kill him, for the Almighty says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. This calmed him in a moment, and he never afterward expressed the least indignation toward Colonel Tarleton. But he would have been ready to show him any friendly office 
if it had fallen in his way. At another time, when he saw a drayman using his horse ill, he became enraged and declared he would get a gun and shoot that fellow directly. But his anger was presently assuaged by this or some similar passage of scripture. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. He showed so much tenderness of conscience that he seemed anxious about nothing but to know what his religion required him to do. When he could determine the rectitude of an action, he set an example even to Christians by showing that he thought there was no difficulty in the performance. He said his father had ordered him, when he arrived in England, never to drink more at one time than a single glass of wine, and he considered his father's injunction as sacred. On this head, therefore, all the instruction which he wanted was to turn his temperance into a Christian virtue by practicing it with a sincere desire to please God. In the gay scenes which often presented themselves to his view, he never mixed. His friends were very solicitous to keep him from all dissipation, which might have corrupted the beautiful simplicity of mind that was so characteristic in him. He was fond of riding on horseback, but when he got upon a horse, it was difficult to govern his desire for rapid motion. After remaining in England a year and a half, and being carefully instructed in the Christian religion, he only waited for an opportunity of returning home, which did not occur for five or six months afterward. In the meantime, two great points were the burden of his thoughts, and gave him much distress. The first related to his father, whose death he heard had happened about a year after he left the country. The principal cause of his solicitude was his uncertainty whether his father had died a Christian. He knew that he had been well disposed toward Christianity, but he had never heard whether he had fully embraced it. His other difficulty regarded himself. He had now attained the end at which he had aimed. He had been instructed in a religion which he was convinced would promote the happiness of his people if it could be established among them. But how was that to be done? With regard to himself, he had had wise and learned men to instruct him. But what could his abilities do in such a work, especially considering the wild and savage manners of his countrymen? In every light, the greatness of the attempt perplexed him. With a mind distressed by these difficulties, he took an affectionate leave of his kind friends in England and embarked for Africa in one of the company's ships, which was named after him, the Naimbana. Though he had shown great affection for his own country and relations, yet the kindness which he had received from his friends in England had impressed him strongly, and it was not without a great struggle that he broke away from them at last. The distress he felt was increased by the society he mixed in at sea being very different from that which he had left behind. The profligate manners and licentious language of the ship's company shocked him exceedingly. The purity of his mind could not bear it. He had hoped that in a Christian country he should always find himself among Christians, but he was greatly disappointed. The company he was in appeared to him as ignorant and uninformed as his own countrymen and much less innocent in their manners. At length, the oaths and abominable conversation which he continually heard affected him so much 
that he complained to the captain of the ship and desired him to put a stop to so indecent language the captain endeavored to check it but with little effect which gave naimbana increased distress but still the great burden of his mind was the difficulty which he foresaw in the attempt to introduce christianity among his countrymen many were the schemes he thought of but insuperable obstacles seemed to arise on every side all this perplexity which his active and generous mind underwent recoiled upon himself his thoughts were continually on the stretch and this it was supposed at length occasioned a fever which seized him when his voyage was nearly at an end his malady increasing it was attended with delirium which left him only a few lucid intervals in these his mind always shone out full of religious hope and patient resignation to the will of god in one of these intervals he told mr graham a fellow passenger with whom he was most intimate that he began to think he should be called away before he had an opportunity to tell his mother of the mercies of god toward him and of his obligations to the sierra leone company he then desired him to write his will which he began in the presence of captain wools and james cato a servant that attended naimbana when mr graham had written a considerable part as particularly directed manifesting the feelings and generosity of his heart naimbana complained of fatigue and said he would finish it after he had taken a little rest but his fever came on with increased violence and his delirium scarcely ever left him afterward the night after the vessel though close to the african coast durst not attempt to land as the wind was contrary and there was danger of running on the scarce bank next morning though the wind continued contrary mr graham went off to the settlement in an open boat to procure medical aid but when the physician came on board naimbana was just alive and in that state he was carried to the settlement the next morning july seventeenth seventeen ninety three when the ship came to anchor on the first account of his illness an express was sent to inform his friend at robana and soon after he was landed his mother brothers sisters and relatives came to the settlement the distracted looks of his mother and the wildness of his sister's grief affected every one his cousin henry an ingenuous youth who stood among them attracted the attention of all by the solemn sorrow of his countenance which seemed to discover a heart full of tenderness and woe in the meantime the dying youth appeared every moment drawing nearer the close of life his voice failing more and more the little he said was with difficulty understood once or twice those who stood around him caught hold of something like our saviour's words many are called but few chosen about an hour before he died his voice wholly failed he was a while restless and uneasy till turning his head on his pillow he found an easier posture and lay perfectly quiet about seven in the evening of the day on which he was brought on shore he expired without a groan when his mother and other relatives found his breath was gone their shrieks and agonizing cries were distressing beyond measure instantly in a kind of frantic madness they snatched up his body 
hurried it into a canoe, and went off with it to Robana. Some of the gentlemen of the factory immediately followed in boats, with a coffin. When the corpse was laid decently into it, Mr. Horn, the clergyman, read the funeral service over it, amid a number of people, and finished with an extempore prayer. The ceremony was conducted with so much solemnity, and performed in so affecting a manner, that the impression was communicated throughout the whole crowd. They drew closer and closer, as Mr. Horn continued to speak, and though they understood not a syllable of what he said, they listened to him with great attention, and bore witness, with every mark of sorrow, to the powers of sympathy. After the ceremony was over, the gentlemen of the factory retired to their boats, leaving the corpse, as his friend desired, to be buried according to the custom of the country. End of section 42